It's June 28th, 2022, and I'm chatting with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. We'll start off with a Washington Post article disrupted by SpaceX. ULA was in serious trouble. Now it's on the road back. So this was kind of like an interesting narrative here about uh, Tony Bruno, who became the CEO over at ULA after they hit some, I guess, pretty hard years. And he wasn't actually a believer at the time. He he thought it was going to be a really hard mission to bring ULA back. But the whole thing was relatively interesting. And it kind of talked about how they're going to you know, fly their next generation Vulcan rocket. And they kind of selected Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin to kind of build the, the rocket for that or the motor. So that's the new Glenn that will be flying. And of course, it's a little bit late. But then Amazon also came in and saved ULA with a big order, right? Um, in terms of they want to do a number of flights for Amazon's Kuiper satellite constellation. And typically, ULA flies about 10 missions a year. The Amazon deal would increase that flight rate to 20 to 25 flights, Bruno said. And so this would actually you know, help them battle out with uh, SpaceX. But then there's also a ton of other uh, Planet Labs, for example, and uh, uh relativity space they're doing the the 3d printed one they haven't flown yet but they will be soon so there's going to be a lot of competition but i guess bruno when he came in he laid off a bunch of staff 30 percent of the staff uh they they brought it down and really i guess i didn't know this at the time but ula was really operating basically as two separate companies when they merged the lockheed and boeing portions really kind of stuck to what they had been doing and he's been working to kind of break down those those barriers um, in terms of separate factory lines and, and all that kind of stuff and separate processes. So it looks like they're on the way back, but there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, competition and other things going on. So we'll see. We'll see what comes of uh, ULA. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a great point on the uh, the fact that ULA basically, it almost seems like once the Pentagon approved, you know, uh, the, the, the merger, quote unquote, it's almost like they just said, like, Hey guys, we're going to keep the same overhead costs. We're just going to basically just, you know, we'll have we'll add another leader at the top of this <laughs> organization. Like that must it was so inefficient. It's unbelievable. It just shows it shows probably the folly a little bit in the whole ULA concept, and definitely shows that Elon Musk got a real case there for like why uh, you know why why he should be should be let into the uh, into the into the competition. But yeah, I thought that was pretty crazy. Uh, he, the the other part that uh, you were kind of getting at there was 40% of executives were laid off, which is, uh, which is kind of a, kind of a lot. Um, but yeah, but, no, but it took Bruno to come in and do that. Right. Right. That was, yeah. That wasn't, that didn't happen naturally when they consolidated no, no. and what you would expect economies of scale, cut overhead staff, you know, like let's, let's get efficiencies. It looked like none of that really happened. Well, and it didn't happen until they were sort of existential crisis with SpaceX, like on their heels. So yeah, it uh, shows you shows you the power of competition there, right? Um, but yeah, the Vulcan clearly is you know wow. There's a lot riding on it. I have to be honest. I don't think I'd want to be on that team because if they if they go another year without it, because it's still like it still actually has to go to get certified. It has to go do uh, two commercial orbital missions before before they can actually use it on the military intelligence missions. So. They have a they have a ways to go there. Um, if anything happens and they can't get that back on track, they're gonna that Amazon contract and uh, the big the big DoD contract is gonna be gonna be really at risk because 
they can't do any more Atlas fives after this year. So they're, they're going to be in, uh, yeah, going to be in tight, in a tight situation there. So I hope, hope they can pull that off. Yeah. Hopefully I guess for them, the, the integration with the new Glenn uh, booster actually works according to plan, but it's kind of funny here that we had, you know, Jeff Bezos's blue origin. Um, and then there's the Amazon deal. Jeff Bezos isn't CEO anymore, but they kind of, you know, bailed out ULA plus the new Glenn in term, you know, in many respects with that. And then this article comes from the Washington Post, which is also owned by <laughs> Jeff Bezos. So there's a little incestuousness within this whole thing and within this whole article. But they, they obviously brought it out. They're like, well, Jeff Bezos owns this thing. But um, it was it was a good article nonetheless. So um, it was interesting. I- I would, I'll tell you what, I would love to hear, I would, I would buy the book, you know, so talking out, talking to all Blue Origin uh, executives out there. Um, if you want to write a book, write a book about the inside story of how, you know, uh, Blue Origin was picked over Aerojet. <laughs> like, like, why wouldn't you go with a company? Like, it, it's kind of crazy they, they chose Blue Origin, uh, given their relative inexperience. But yeah. Yeah. But um, like, who else are you going to? kind of go with right like you're not going to hand it to spacex and everyone else is kind of less less money has been put into everyone else blue origin has had the most most money put into it yeah they had to make a i guess they had to make a decision about whether to go with aerojet or um or blue origin they chose blue yeah origin, aerojet so. yeah. yeah that's the classic that would have been uh, that, that interesting though why they did i would have liked i'd like to know that story <laughs> well one of the inside scoop things um this was going to be for next week but uh, there is an article, Get Your Boy Elon in Line. A former NASA official says she was ridiculed for supporting SpaceX in new memoir. So she has this memoir. I guess she was around at that that early time. And actually, she's accusing Bill Nelson, who's now the NASA administrator. But at that time, I think he was in Congress. Um, he's saying all the right things now, but apparently he was really chiding her and like she was catching a whole bunch of flack for uh, you know supporting SpaceX and trying to get them in the game at the time. And, you know, it's one of those things people, you know, kind of change their color sometimes, you know, like, oh, now that they're starting to work. Oh, now I'm on board. I knew it all along. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I think actually that lady, um, she was deputy NASA administrator. She's in the, the Netflix show. Um, I, I forget the name, but it's like Lori Garver is her name. Yeah. Yeah. She really she did. I think uh, she's kind of an underrated player in this whole thing because she actually put a lot on the line. Like she put a lot of credibility on the line. And if you watch that show, it's something like return to launch or something. But oh, right. if you watch, if you watch that, like all of these former astronauts, John Glenn, like all these senators are like yelling at her pra- pra- practically like, you know, on the, on the floor, like on the congressional floor. And like, just like saying like, this is a failure. There's going to be, it's going to be horrible. Like she really took a lot of flack. I think she deserves like, the medal of freedom or something for kind of <laughs> sticking that out because yeah so i'm glad i'm glad to hear she's writing the book because she, she probably uh, has a good story to tell yeah behind every great entrepreneur there's a, a bureaucrat who was willing to go against other bureaucrats that never gets recognized <laughs> good point uh, I'm just obviously I'm making that up, but well, you're <laughs> not, probably, you're right. not everyone you're right, needed though. a bureaucrat, but like <laughs> certain like regulated yeah, industries, like in crypto, yeah. right? They they have the crypto mom, right? That was in the SEC, and you know, so it's definitely going to happen in some places. But I don't think Jeff Bezos on his rise, right? He didn't need bureaucrats. That was just like the internet, the the wild wild west out there, right? Go onto the frontier. 
No I don't know. There way. probably was some bureaucrat though who probably could have like come up with some internet rules that would have True. stifled them or something. But Congress but was yeah. very liberal at that time in terms of allowing because um, they could have just locked down the internet. And so that, that's a good point. I, I'm not really sure what that story was. There's probably some hero in the background. Yeah, I, I think I think what you said is kind of right on. Like you think about people like Dr. Roper and you know Honda Gertz. Like there there have been some change agents like that can really kind of shift things and allow things to happen that under like normal sort of, you know, regimes would just never, never happen. So, yeah. And the other part was um, the Vulcan, they want to refly it, but also by catching it rather than, you know, landing it vertically like SpaceX. So uh, I guess they'll do that with helicopters. Um, some other companies have also been looking into it. Hmm. Interesting. So next one we'll do Army's autonomous HIMARS moving forward will be at Project Convergence. And HIMARS, of course, is high mobility artillery rocket system made by Lockheed. The Army currently doesn't have a program of record for this instantiation of the HIMARS, which is um, software that modifies the HIMARS so it can be controlled remotely and driven autonomously. And so Indopaycom seems to be particularly interested in this, I guess, if you have um, like an island that's easy to shoot at. You don't want a whole bunch of people supporting it as well. Maybe you want just that guy. But they did do, and we talked about this, I think last year, where they had a C-130 and they quickly, you know, got onto an island, unloaded a high Mars, um, and they were able to drive it around, do some do some shooting and pick it back up and, and drive off, or I guess fly off in terms of the C-130. And so, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think it's, I think this, uh, you know, it's, this is the kind of outside the box thinking uh, that, that we need, right, in the Pacific theater, because it's, it's different than what we've been doing for the last uh, 20, 30 years. So yeah, the, the other piece of this that I liked was just that whole idea of thinking of different concepts, like different ways to employ these capabilities that exist, and that are being matured, right, like high Mars, like if the range is getting better, and you know, so these kind of improvements can really kind of like expand that concept space. So I, I like the fact that they kind of said, yeah, it's not mature, you know, no one's decided on it. Indopaycom hasn't agreed to it, but hey, we're, we're trying some, we're trying some things out here. Uh, maybe this works, maybe it doesn't, you know, and so, but I think, yeah, having this ability to do some of it autonomously so you don't have like a soldiers, you know, standing in harm's way is, is pretty powerful. Drop, I could see, you know, drop some of these off, you know, different places and, you know, and just let them sit there. And like, you know, China may not even know that there's anything there. And then, you know, you can kind of get some, some surprise out of it. So, yeah. This is a, and by the way, the High Mars carries uh, a pod that can have six GMLRSs, the Gimlers. Uh, it can have two prisms, the precision strike missiles, or one attackums, which is, again is another surface-to-surface missile. Um, but I was kind of surprised that there's one attackums and two uh, PRSMs. Uh, the PRSMs are, have a longer range. I, I guess they were able to get it down into a smaller form factor, but yeah, um, yeah, they're they're, they're smaller. The attackums is kind of a humongous, humongous missile. I was surprised too. Yeah, the PRSM was actually designed to be a little bit more compact. But Tacoms has got to be like a thirty-year-old, you know. Yeah, it, it looks like it too. It's yeah. got that green, like that green color, and like it, yeah, it looks like it's from me. <laughs> <laughs> um, in service from nineteen ninety-one to the present, so yeah, eighties uh, development right there. Uh, Air Force thinking new ways to handle black swan events in acquisition. 
Uh, so a couple of rehashes of things from Heidi Shu in terms of uh, the Valley of Death and budget reform with the PBBE, Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution Commission. But here, Cameron Holt also had some good lines. Uh, I think the budgeting process definitely needs to change. I'm really proud of the House Armed Services Committee and Senate Armed Services Committee for recognizing that. I think the appropriators need to be involved in that discussion as well. And he actually said, I'm more urgently interested in oversight inside the year of execution um, as opposed to kind of like oversight over these future plans, you know, distant out in decades into the future and and having your requirements all set that I would assume here. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love what Cameron Holt's been saying. He was also recently at the pricing summit. I think that was out in San Diego. I haven't watched through his presentation, but I think it's going to be a lot of good stuff. And it's unfortunate that he's retiring, but he's done a lot of good stuff. Yeah, he's he's always been sort of a unique leader. Um, you know, being a contracting guy, he's he's sort of had uh, always had a much bigger kind of picture view. You know, and I think I think he saw it too from a contracting perspective, where he could have made really good business decisions. Um, you know, if 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 they had the ability to sort of shift funds over, or to uh, you know to start things, or to put pressure on on maybe a vendor that wasn't performing and say, Hey, you know what, we're, we're going to start up this other thing. Um, you know, and just kind of as a hedge against what you're doing there. Um, and you know, if you want to come in and charge a, you know, charges through the roof, well, we might just go with this other person. So yeah, I think he's actually seen it from that perspective and really appreciated kind of the PBE impact of that. And, and so, so yeah, it's great. I, I totally agree on his point about the appropriators. I, I do not think we are there with the appropriators. I think that's um, and that is going to be a really, really hard challenge. I think even the language you saw in the twenty-three kind of uh, right the hack D report just shows you that they're 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 not quite there. So, so yeah, that's a good um, yeah. I look forward to watching his video too. But but uh, but yeah, he is uh, he has a lot of good thoughts. Uh, definitely, and he was kind of he he had a bunch of other good points here allowing for some judgment and decision making at the point of attack at the point of execution um how can we avoid holes in these dozens of programs we need to rapidly move money to emerging technologies that we didn't know existed a year ago right so say, he's saying the things that you know make some sense here uh, we need that kind of budget flexibility uh but, you know, to your point on the appropriators, and it, it's, it's important that someone, you know, is at least kind of standing up and saying these things uh, publicly because it's easy for that to kind of get swept away. And hopefully the budget commission here, the PBBE commission, um, actually gets some good visibility. But with respect to the appropriators, right, the House appropriators had some interesting language in their 23 uh, report or defense appropriations bill that's directing the Space Force to conduct all of these, you know, quote unquote, rigorous technical analysis matched with executable plans resourced by realistic budgets, right? So let's just double down on what we've been doing forever um, in like the same language, the same thoughts. But it looks like, you know, in this new article that we're shifting over to here, new head of Space Force acquisition looks to get back to the basics. Uh, Cavelli, who is now the service acquisition executive for the Space Force, he's coming in and he's saying, he's kind of taking that to heart from what the appropriators have been saying. He says, uh, quote, we need to make sure we have really good acquisition and contracting strategies up front. 
We have to execute and deliver on time. The big push for me is how we're going to set a program baseline right up front so that we can actually achieve it. Uh, so he's putting a lot of uh, focus here on realistic cost estimates and timelines and holding contractors accountable. So again, it's like this focus on this life cycle, long-term plan where you, where money is kind of stuck where you said it was going to be stuck years ago. Whereas I think what Holt was saying and what you were getting to is like, how do you get at leverage, right? You don't have leverage if it's like, yeah, the budget says this, this amount of money is going to this thing no matter what, and I can't move it anywhere else and you've won it. So you got me over a barrel, right? Like the ability yeah. to move money is the ability to have leverage. And like, I think any kind of contracting person would be like, well, if I can't like, legitimately take my business to an alternative elsewhere or find alternatives um, for that opportunity cost. I don't have leverage, right? So it's interesting here. We got a little kind of back-to-back, -back, both in the Department of Air Force, but views on, you know, what this kind of like budgeting and execution and cost estimating world should look like. And in terms of oversight, a lot of it drives oversight, of course, or oversight drives a lot of this. Uh, so what's your, I, what was your reaction when you saw that article on the Space Force? Yeah, well, I don't know if you saw my snarky LinkedIn post, but, um, but I did, yeah, I did, did make some comments, mainly because it's, it, the, the weirdest thing about it is, is sort of that he's acting as if <laughs> this isn't what the Space Force has been doing or what, what Spa uh, Space and Missile Center now, you know, Space Systems Command is doing. I, they've always been very disciplined. They have teams of cost estimators. They've, they're very baseline centric. I, we've done reports on telling them they need to be, you know, less so, you know, like they need more flexibility because they have like huge, like, you know, you start a program, they basically give you like a, you know, a 600 line Excel file of all the things you need to do to get started. I mean, it's, they are, you know, I almost don't want to call it disciplined, but it's disciplined. I mean, they really, very rigorous kind of thing. So they've been doing that. And that's, I think the point that he's missing is, that's not working <laughs> and it's not working because for one, we take on these programs and they have too many hard requirements and we, you know, we try to solve world hunger in one big satellite. And, and so one of the things he did say in another article that I did, cause I gave him a lot of grief about some of his comments, but he actually did say some other things about like iteration and, you know, uh, you know, kind of making it more manageable. He, he had some other good thoughts. So, I think he does get it. I just some of these some of these words he used are just like trigger words for me. So <laughs> definitely definitely don't agree with like spending all of our time doing like laborious cost estimates because we've already we've already done that. Like that's that's not it's not a deviation from what's being done now. We need something. We need a new new approach. So yeah, the idea that we need to cost estimate better is hard for me as a cost estimator to believe. <laughs> right? It's like I think we've doubled down on that in the six in sixty two in the seventies. In the 80s, in the 90s, with Basara in 2009, like, I, I don't know if, like, you can just go out there and just say, like, oh, we have a 10x way of doing this better. We've been doing it all wrong, you know? <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know how, how that works. Oh, we were using uh, analogous data. We should have been using uh, bottoms up. Like, yeah, but I don't know what you would do different, but. All right, Lockheed Martin blends AI decision aid virtual Aegis combat system in drill near Guam. And this is the Di Diamond Shield. Um, I guess it's an artificial intelligence technology that's analyzing optimal command and control data in real time during dynamic fires. Um, and it provides commanders with decision aids. So apparently, you know, 
like if as we know with Aegis, that brings together all sorts of sensor data and then you know was originally for shooting down missile defense but or missile for missile defense but it's kind of like you know Lockheed's been trying to really expand its realm um, of that kind of core set of software to more surface ship stuff um, for for self-defense and other things as well I guess larger and more jadsy two type things and that's what they're trying to demonstrate here um and so aegis combat system will become portable um through the vols effort which will pack the cruiser and destroyer based combat system into portable cases aegis in the future could be used to fire missiles from unmanned surface vessels or from ground-based systems for joint operations so it looks like they probably virtualized and really compacted it as well uh, but I know Aegis was a pretty, I guess, uh, fragile system in the past. Well, yeah. Whenever you saw like them install a new Aegis, I mean, it looked like a looked like a new like industrial building. It looked like a factory or something almost. Like pretty pretty large. Yeah, complex. Aegis ashore. That's like in Poland. It's like this <laughs> massive building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, the virtualized piece. Uh, it does. It does seem like it's going to be a lot, a lot smaller. Um, interesting to see more about how it's sort of modularized in terms of like you get you know x capability in this package you get xx capability if you make it bigger yeah i'd be curious to see more about that but um i think it's going to be linked to high mars and all sorts of other things too i wonder like how connected uh, it is to like the lockheed suite of um capabilities uh versus other things as well but looks like they're trying to you know open it up yeah they have there's a bunch of comms that they they say they're already interoperable with uh, some of the Link 16s, UCI, um, DDS. So yeah, they're they're clearly like this is a clearly JADC2 sort of solution that they're 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 seeing it as uh, something for them to do. Yeah, it has uh, capabilities for yeah, has a bunch of different capabilities. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're they're definitely looking to the future. I think. I mean, I think this is right. The Aegis is a really you know proven system. We need we need those uh, kind of missile defense capabilities in some of the really kind of uh, uh, vulnerable, shall we say, places that we're going to be operating in the Pacific. And so, you know, if this can give us that extra level of survivability or at least improve the odds, um, you know, as, as China, you know, in some conflict starts launching a, a, a lot of missiles, um, uh, you know, that's great, right? And uh, if, especially if you can sort of like, you know, pack it up and sort of ship it around some of the islands and things like that as you need to. That's that's a huge capability. So yeah, so I hope this I hope this works um, the way that they're they're envisioning it. Applying AI to this kind of thing just makes a lot of sense because as you start to get more targeting data, and this is all about JADC too, right? Is just getting all, all that data into a targeting solution. I mean, that's sort of what it boils all down to. And so if this uh, diamond shield can kind of help with that, then then great. That idea of Jadsy 2 is find the target, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I wonder, you know, how much this overlaps or will compete with Lattice and the, the Andural stuff. You know, it seems like they're starting with drone defense, you know, counter UAS stuff, small stuff at first, whereas this is more taking care of high-end threats. I wonder who can kind of get into the other person's realm first, you know? Um, well, I, I think the lattice piece, I mean, they're clearly scaling it to be more sophisticated, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think a lot of that could be sort of base defense stuff from smaller targets and, and different things that are, that are a problem. But, you know, when you get into the ballistic missile space, uh, you know, even the hypersonic, like hypersonic space, you're going to need something, you know, something more high end like this. I don't, 
think I don't think Andrew's quite there yet. I think they would have Yeah, but whose core technology can expand to to meet the other threats, right? Faster. That's the or question. They're, or they're complementary. They just stay complementary. I mean, that's probably the best answer. And that's why, you know, it's good that some of this stuff I, and I bet you, right, a lot of this stuff is all kind of iratty um for the most part. But mm-hmm. um yeah, that's it's a good point because like if they tried to do this too out in the open, then people would start like congressional staffers would be like, "Oh well, can't we just get rid of one of them and just like only fund one? Like, why why do we need two? <laughs> you know?" Uh, so it's good to kind of have that competition and like contingency and like they have their own roles. You could call them high low mix to some degree, right? Even if that that might not be true, but um, yeah, I certainly hope we wouldn't do that because I mean, honestly, we should have there should be an Aegis competitor and I don't really know of one. I mean, maybe you're right about Lattice kind of being like the, the growth, the growth uh, kind of capability that will become that. But yeah, we really should be pushing more, more of the, well, the, the primes the, to get the in this business. Is the army's um, <laughs> integrated, you know, they had the integrated oh, air missile defense yeah, and then they kind yeah. of built that out into their, their own like thing. And I don't know if that's going to also integrate with Titan and some of these other things, but um, yeah, again, I, be cool to just get the mapping of what it actually exists today and where it, where it goes. Yeah, you're right. AIMD. So if you if you deployed that, if you deployed AIMD, I wonder. Um, yeah, I wonder how the capabilities match up against Aegis. Because when you when you see the Paycom kind of UPOLs, they always they always want they always seem to want the Aegis. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, but, I mean yeah. the Navy. It means <laughs> Navy stuff too, right? So Navy's going to be familiar with their own stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, speaking of Navy, Navy to begin key competition for unmanned autonomy efforts. And so they're really, the, the article here is really pointing to a five-year contract that they're going to look for to do something called the, I guess it's in conjunction with the Rapid Autonomy Integration Lab, the RAIL, which is a software factory for the Navy um, that's going to do a lot of the ground level work in terms of bringing together unmanned capabilities kind of in one way. So it looks like they kind of want to be the hub and then like the contractors will in a way be a, be the spokes delivering mission systems or autonomy solutions and algorithms. And like the rail would kind of be the one-stop shop that keeps everything conforming to a standard. So it can be quickly deployed, not just on a single uh, platform, but across all of their kind of unmanned solutions. So yeah, it looks interesting. I mean, it's called UMS, the Autonomy Baseline Manager Prototyping Contract. Um, it's about two years of, of planning here, uh, including industry days and stuff like that. They're hoping to kind of go into the base year in FY23 to establish rail. Option two in 25, they'll start integrating and then they'll have some stuff going out further. But the first thing it looks like on their timeline here that they're going to be trying to integrate on is the Overlord, which is, of course, the Strategic Capabilities Office um, program that has been transitioned or is in the process of transitioning over to the Navy. That's the surface unmanned ship and then, or this the surface, yeah, USV, unmanned surface ship. And then they're also a little bit behind that will be the XLUV, which I believe will be Boeing's Orca, and then a whole slew of other things further out than that. But looks like these things aren't going to be the blocks, at least on this schedule, um, say that that kind of capability will be dropping in FY twenty six timeframe. So there's your there's your five years. 
Yeah, and I think I mean this the concept the concept is pretty sound. I mean, it's not that dissimilar from from what the army is doing in terms of you know sort of the different autonomy um, architectures that can be applied and, and the different autonomy modules that can apply to multiple different vehicles. And and so this this kind of makes a lot of sense because what you use for a large uh, USV. Um, you know, why can't that be applied to a medium USV, right? Or what, what you're doing for the XL UUV, why can't that be for for the a medium UUV, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense to sort of, you know, manage this architecture, uh, kind of leverage it for the different platforms. Of course, you're going to have to tailor it. You have different vendors. There's going to be integration sort of challenges. And, and all that's going to have to be worked out. But, um, yeah, I think this is really sound. The, the schedule is kind of interesting because you do kind of get a sense of, where the the navy is kind of thinking about the next things like yeah like you said the orcas already funded um you're getting you know it's, it's getting funding uh then the medium the medium platform architect contract is going to be worked and that's like leading up to the musv and then you can see there's the small uh uuv so you know, you can see some of that for like mines or something like that, or for kind of ISR or something like. So you can kind of see where the Navy's thinking about its its sort of autonomy roadmap uh, from some of this, which is which is interesting. But yeah, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. And you know, the sooner they get sort of working on this and get those factories stood up and get those processes matured, then they'll be you know be in better shape and they can kind of make the case with the Hill on, hey, we have all the you know enablers in place, right? That was the big thing with the appropriators last year was we don't have you guys aren't working on the enablers and this will kind of show like hey we have all this in place digital infrastructure in place uh we're ready to move out let's like let's go all in on some of these autonomous vehicles because we need you know we need some new capabilities most certainly we'll see when they get to the pro the dreaded program of record for these things right <laughs> uh, all right house seeks to establish critical munitions reserve and defense authorization and that is to replenish critical munitions inventories that address air superiority, interdiction, air and missile defense, and hard and deeply buried uh, target mission areas. And so it looks like this in the FY23 um, NDAA, they actually didn't like put any money to it. They're just kind of asking, hey, within 90 days, give me a report on what that should look like. So I'd be interested to see you know, what that, I mean, I assume it's just going to be a list of what exists today that we need to build um, and how many of them do we need to get in what kind of production order. But Mark Kansian here kind of says, you know, it's like, well, it's in the right direction, but there's only a couple of manufacturers that provide components for many of the different munitions and you can get more components for munitions X, but that means less from Y. So basically I think his point here is that um, there's kind of like just bottlenecks in the supply chain and there's not much people can do about that. But, you know, throwing money at something is always a good way to, to uh, get something unstuck. You know, even if it's not that efficient, you know, money money speaks in that. Re I mean, when you think about it, that's how the price mechanism works in the economy, right? Like you don't want to control prices in a disaster area because then that's going to stop people from actually being the middleman and actually getting resources to the highest valued uses. Um, so, yeah, I mean... To some degree, I don't see any other option other than throw money at the problem because we are where we are. We can't like look to new munitions and like brand new ways of doing things. We got to just do what we got to do now and then think about the future, too. I don't know. What's your what's your thought? Well, I mean, 
and I do, by the way, I do think they, they the Defense Production Act did get some, uh, like 600 million to, uh, to work on supply chain, munition supply chains and missile production. So I, I think they could use that money to some effect, um, depending on where it makes sense to put. But I think like, you know, just going back to your market principles, like if the demand signal is there and they, and DOD is clear on, you know, we are going to buy at this level of munitions for, for X period of time, I think, I think DOD needs to be more explicit about its purchases and, you know, you don't want to project out too far and say, oh, in 20 years, we're still going to start going to buy 500. But, you know, there's no reason why you can't say over the next five years, yes, we're going to buy more JASMs. And that's why we want you to increase that to 10, that, that production line to 10,000 a year. Um, yes, we are going to buy, you know, Javelins and we're going to buy AMRAMs and we want you to double production. And, you know, some of that is being worked. But, you know, I think as long as the DOD is really clear about that demand signal, a lot of this stuff will get worked out. Those companies that only make, you know, components, yeah, they, they might have a they might have an issue now, but they will start making those investments because they want to grow, right? They want to get that additional um, supply, or the, you know, they want that additional demand so they can start. Yeah, you know, but the, well, the issue in in my mind is what signal will make them invest in capital because they're going to be like, no, I'm just going to like max out what I'm going to do now and just do around the clock shifts. But like, I'm not going to invest in this capital, and then a couple of years later, I get it. And by that time, Ukraine who, right? Like, oh, well, that crisis is over by, you know, now. And the military then pairs back their investment in munitions. And then they're stuck with all this capital that um, they got to eat, right? Um, they're not going to be getting cost plus contracts on these things. So especially for the capital. So, well, so, this, might be a, right? this might be a place to do. I mean, I hear you. I think you're right. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what needs to be done. What will it take to convince? You know, this might be one of those cases where maybe you do need multi-year contracts on some of these uh, for some of these munitions, and and you just start you just throw a lot of money on it. You you can't maybe you don't fund all five like all like multiple years, you know, at once. But you give them the contract, and that gives you, you know, some some assurance that uh, that the DoD is serious about it. Uh, but I also do think you could probably use that six hundred million of DPA money you know, to at least sort of push them in the right direction to maybe fund some of the tooling. Um, if there's some particular tooling that's really expensive, you know, maybe you can sort of support that CapEx a little bit. Um, you know, so I think that's what, I think that's what the study really probably needs to get after is my experience with sort of ramping up on some of the lower end munitions was, you know, it was basically a matter of going out there and seeing like the, the size of the facility. Do you need to get a new facility? If you need a new facility, that's a kind of a big, big deal. Um, yeah, the tooling, how fast can you get to tooling? How much does that cost? The people, can you hire the people? How long does it get them trained? Like you got to think through all that stuff, you know, and now you have supply chain issues with, uh, microelectronics and different things, different materials that are getting harder to, harder to get because the, you know, Russia, Ukraine, some of the supply chains are getting messed up. So, you know, you have to look at the totality of it and then see like, where can you employ those resources to sort of get that, get that moving. And then, and then I think if you have that demand signal, you know, but maybe with those multi-year contracts, I, I think that would be enough to, to get to get these folks moving and say, okay, we're going to double our production line. Uh, we think there's enough. We think this is worth it, you know? So yeah. And a recent, I think it's doable. The recent blog I did, one of uh, Raytheon's um, executives was kind of saying, well, yes, we need the MYPs. Uh, and yes, 
supply chains are sucking. Some electronics components are have gone from 60 day lead time to now 700 day lead time. So like two years. Um, But then he also makes the point uh, we need not just economic price adjustment uh, clauses in those contracts. Right. So more EPA to, you know, hedge against inflation risk, but advanced procurement and long lead items. So can we get those Mm -hmm. contracts to the subcontractors just go in and then we can figure out this one to two year negotiated uh, major, you know, platform contract for the the missiles with the government ourselves later on those timelines. Let's just get the freaking, you know, subcontractors engaged fully and we can hammer out those other details later. That's a really, that's a really good point because you kind of forget, um, I did like a supply chain study on, on just the, um, the, the, you know, the tips of the, uh, uh, of, of the nuclear, uh, the nuclear missiles and just sort of seeing the, uh, and there's not that, there's not even that much, like that many, that much equipment there. Like it's really just sort of this like special kind of material and some basic electronics, but you go down the supply chain and you see, it's like one supplier that makes this stuff. And it's some, not quite a mom and pop shop, but it's like, a small company and some like, you know, sort of non, you know, suburb or outside of the suburbs kind of thing. And they're, they're like a critical link. So yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense actually is sort of like, let's get that advanced procurement, get those guys activated because they can't respond that fast. They, they cannot hire more people in many cases. They cannot sort of expand very easily. And so that gives them sort of, the I almost don't time. want them to expand. I right. Want them to right. Max, you don't. I want yeah. them to max out what they're yep. doing and yep. find new, because they're pro- they're they're probably on old stuff, right? They're they're not going to be like super no. like with the latest machine tools that are highly automated that like you know people coming out of college might be you know familiar with. So I'd like to see you know potentially kind of some shakeups in that because we can't be living with the the NASA Apollo age you know aerospace supply chain there. And then of course it always goes back to. You know, when you when you need to get the propellant and the the types of explosives, those are actually going to be done in GoCo or GoGo kind of facilities, right? Mm-hmm. Like at Radford and other places. So, um, how do you expand that? So, you know, obviously, whenever you get into an industrial mobilization issue, you come to these issues, and the contractors or industry themselves, they don't really quite know what to do because it's so kind of uncertain because those investments take a long time, and they don't know what the geopolitical situation is. Just like government just probably has to do more kind of go coy things, right? Government owned contractor operate where they just, you know, we're just going to invest in the excess um, floor space and facilities and capital because especially in these times, like you got, you got to start ramping it up now, right? Because we've, we've had our, our period of peace and once things start feeling dangerous, you kind of need to gear up at least to an extent for, like some a real kind of war, not just like a, a short war. I guess, you know, the global war on terror was no short war, but it wasn't like an intense war of the type that, you know, where you're really expending uh, munitions like at a really rapid rate. Yeah, well, we only ran out ran out because we kind of stopped buying them. <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. You're right about the uh, the GoCo thing is like, um, you know, there have been some investments and expansions, which is promising, but but you're right. It could easily wind up as you maximize all these places, but all of your missiles are using the same HDX, RDX kind of explosives. And like that becomes the limfac and you just can't do anything about it. So you can do all these other investments and it could just wind down to like, 
nope, we only have this much supply. So what then it becomes like, what missiles do you want us to, you know, to use this on? You know, Patriot or do you want to do you want to make Amrams? You know, or something. Yeah. Limfac. That's got to go into my lexicon there. <laughs> oh, factor. No, I mean that was pretty obvious of what that was. But this article actually, I don't know why, it kind of like took a weird pivot. Um, and started talking about the AWACS, the Airborne Warning and Control System, the EC, E3, that the Air Force was trying to retire 15 out of 31. And it looks like Congress uh, might okay them on 10 of those. But they're really trying to, you know, accelerate the E7 wedge tail there as the, the gap filler. Because um, they're if the Air Force is going to divest from these and they're not going to get, you know, the first pr- prototype unit out for five years. <laughs> of the E7 and then production might happen years later. So um, that's, that's a pretty big gap. Yeah. I hope uh, we, we, we talked about that uh, last, last time about how long it was going to take the E7. I, I, I do wonder if maybe, um, you know, Congress kind of holding some of that back, maybe that will make the air force get a little bit, uh, maybe tighten the, uh, tighten the plan up a little bit and say, Hey, are we asking for too much on the C7 or what are the, what are the, what's the critical path there that's really driving kind of that really long timeline that doesn't seem like it should be that long. So. House Armed Services bill proposes $75 million for rapid space launch activities. And I guess that's the TAC-RL2. Uh, they demonstrated last year the Space Force, and they were kind of trying to bring that up. Uh, so normally it takes a satellite launch two to five years to plan and execute. Um, and in this tactical response, they were able to do it in 11 months. So I'd like to kind of kind of even see that get down a little bit further um doesn't sound all that impressive to me but you know i'm sure there's a lot more than i imagined can go on in that so i'll hold my tongue but you know it looks like the the house armed services committee is actually pretty um supportive of it the they wanted to actually increase funding to 150 million for 23 uh but apparently uh dod is actually not executing a lot of that money that was added last year so um they're not going to give it to them. But, you know, at least it looks like people are interested in this rapid access to commercial launch vehicles. And um, there will be some progress on that front. Yeah, no, this is this is good. I mean, this is uh, this has been talked about a long, long time in space is the, the ability to um, even during the, the Gulf War was, you know, COCOM commanders would basically be asking for assets that, uh, you know, either the space not Space Force back then, but, you know, the Air Force was only able to sort of dedicate, you know, a limited amount so they could never meet the commander's need. And so this was the idea that we would launch these sort of tactical satellites that wouldn't be like long lived, but they would provide a key, you know, key missions for, um, you know, that would be more responsive to the needs. So, so yeah, we, I think Space Force has to get better at this, um, especially, you know, in a China scenario where you might have, you know, you might lose some things. And so maybe you do want to launch some, some sort of gap fillers. A lot of that 11 months, I do think that as we get better at space launch um, and there's more space launches available, I do think that could be brought down because, you know, while integration development of the satellite is a big thing, I think we're going to get better at that with, uh, you know, 3D printing and, and, you know, especially if we're doing more CubeSat type stuff. So I think that 11 months, a lot of it is just sort of the planning for the launch cycle, which happens a long time in advance, um, given all the demands on it. But yeah, so it's good. I'm glad to see that Haska is supporting this. I hope... uh, hope the appropriators uh, support this. I didn't look, I didn't look and see if the appropriators supported the, uh, supported the ad or not. But. Yeah. That's always this year, right? Mommy and daddy, there's four of them and you got to get them all to agree. <laughs> um, 
Next one we got, France requests switchblade loitering munition to fill urgent capability gap. And so the French are looking hard here at Air Environment's switchblade uh, within, to get it in the inventory within the next six months. So that's pretty, pretty fast, actually, in the inventory. So they're really looking at it. It's just like kind of an off-the-shelf buy. Um, so it looks like the army, the French army here, is looking for a capability that is different than a mortar or an artillery shell. If it's the same price as a mortar round and goes, uh, a mortar round will normally go about three kilometers. Um, if it can do that, then it's interesting. If it's 10 times more expensive than the mortar and goes that same range, then it's less interesting. However, <laughs> if the weapon can fly 30 to 50 kilometers, um, and it has an endurance of two to four hours, suddenly I can take that on recovering mission and it's a whole different animal. Um, I thought the discussion was a little bit weird because I'm just like, well, this thing flies somewhere. We, You should be able to know that kind of cost-effectiveness trade-off now. Why are you just like throwing it out there? But it looks like the Switchblade 300 goes around... Probably like 10, eight or something, right? Yeah, 10 kilometers, 6.2 yeah. miles. I'm not really about the the Switchblade 600 can go maybe 40 kilometers, uh, but that one is so that's in the higher end there. But then the Switchblade 600 is also going to be something like 200 250 k um, a pop. So that's going to be much more than an artillery round, right? So it doesn't doesn't it's like what are you talking about and you know what is, what are the price points? I mean, he's kind of talking in abstract notions, but they should not be abstract for him. This thing, these things exist in the real world. So, I mean, it's, it sounded to me almost, I felt the same way about this one. I was like, I was like, I don't know what he's getting at. Like, you know, the price and you know, the capabilities, they're not like, uh, there's not some, you know, brand new switchblade coming out, at least not that we know about. So I think he's like a little bit of a negotiating tactic. Yeah, he doesn't want, he doesn't want to say like, <laughs> man, I, but he says, I need to fill the urgent capability gap. Like, yeah, he's going to fill true, my yeah. urgent capability gap. But, yeah. you know, if it's worth it to me, <laughs> you know, like... I might not be interested, yeah. Interested. <laughs> well, there you go. There's some leverage, right? Like, they can take their yeah. money elsewhere. We would be like, no, Congress said Switchblade, and there's actually a line <laughs> item in the budget for Switchblades, right? Uh, so it's not called Switchblade, but that's what it's for. And, um, yeah. You're right. That You're right. That, you're right. <laughs> that, is, that, that is a great analogy for what we just talked about, about, like... But they actually can say, like, yeah, we might not buy it versus, like, yeah, you try to pull that. People will be like, yeah, we uh, we know. <laughs> this is going to happen. We've already talked to. Uh, oh, yeah. It would be like oh, right it'd be like the yeah. border wall. It's like, we're not going to spend it on switchblades. What do you mean you're not going to spend it on switchblades? You're defying Congress. You are <laughs> ruining the taxpayer and, you know, disrupting our democracy. It's like, well, I, I was just trying to get a better price, yo. Like... <laughs> <laughs> You know, like there's other things I can buy too that can that have a capability um, that that fills this gap, and that's what he's trying to say. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I did kind of, I did kind of laugh about that too because, like, um, one thing he didn't say is it's different than a mortar artillery shell. But there's actually a lot of like I was sort of, you know, as part of our you know little article thing, like looking at the different artillery options, and they're getting kind of like missile type ranges, so. There actually are some pretty long distance mortar. They're not, they're not loitering, but but it is kind of interesting that he's focused on three kilometers. So that's actually pretty that's pretty short for a lot of like modern artillery and, and some of the some of the higher end stuff now. You can get some pretty crazy distances. So all right, the next one we'll do troop or sorry, 
Paul, and I guess that's Rand Paul, to oppose small business program Pentagon uses to spur innovation from defense news. And so Senator Rand Paul, top Republican in the Senate Small Business and Entrepreneurship Co- Committee, um, is actually showing op- opposition to the $3.3 billion CIBR Small Business Innovation Research Program. Um, and it looks like there's kind of two separate threads that were kind of intermingled throughout this whole thing. Yeah. But one is that there's a lack of protection against ties between CIBR program awardees and China. And then the second thing, uh, which is a little bit related, but the second is that uh, there's kind of like this weird business model. And Ben Van Roo had those uh, those posts looking at this and others as well, that, you know, it's really the big companies, right? Like the entrenched kind of existing companies that are cyber mills that kind of have been taking a lot of the cyber money. And it's not really going in all cases, of course, Afrix has been trying to change this and others, but it's not really going to like new innovative program or companies that are trying to scale up and, and do big things. Uh, so, and I think, you know, maybe those are a little bit uh, related, right? Like um, if you have a company that gets a phase one, but they're not going anywhere, well, what am I going to do? I'll just sell it to China, right? <laughs> like who's going to invest in this? China is willing to invest. So I'll go over there. So I think they're related and I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I get it on the China front, but it's also like, it really comes back to if you're worried that China is going to get it, but you're not willing to invest in it yourself, then what's the problem here? Uh, Andrea Garrity had a good point on the podcast recently where she was like, I don't get ITAR. They're slapping ITAR restrictions, the international traffic and arms regulation onto all these like startup companies that are national security adjacent, but then the, those companies can't get any money from the government. So they can't go find investment elsewhere. They can't um, get it from the government. So they're stuck. Right. Um, but if you're saying it's ITAR, you're saying it's too important for China to get, then why is no, then no one's investing in them. They, they're going there for a reason, you know? Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I also think there has to be sort of a reasonableness on, um, you know, the, the Chinese, like the Chinese clearly, right. They, they had a lot of money. Um, maybe, maybe they're pulling back a little bit with some of their, um, some of their like foreign investments, but, but, you know, they, they've been out there trying to find different ways of deploying their capital and get and getting it. Some of it, some of it is malicious that they're investing in companies that they do want to steal IP from, no, no doubt. But they're also, they also do have VC firms, you know, and they're funding different things around the world. And, and so to figure that out actually is not inconsequential. You actually do sort of have to really dig in some of these, you know, uh, some of these sort of shell companies, there's like, you got to kind of trace that. So it's not trivial to deter, always determine the money that uh, these, uh, some company might be getting that's coming up for a cyber phase one, uh, you know, which is small dollars. So they might be getting money from many different places. It doesn't mean that China has like an inside, inside door uh, to their IP. Um, but at the same time, when you, I, think, I think the balance has to be is if you're giving them 50K, you probably don't need to do this. If you're starting to give them like, you know, millions of dollars, then that due diligence is probably like worthwhile and just be like, you know, are, where are you getting your money from? And, you know, if you are getting your money from, from some, you know, irreputable source, well, that's maybe when you bring in the national security innovation capital, the trusted capital, all these other DOD initiatives uh, that have been stood up to prevent that. So, you know, Wait, so trusted capital some... marketplace, does that even exist anymore? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it does. Yeah. Like I haven't heard, I, I remember it was coming up and it 
didn't have a business model that made sense to me, but I just haven't heard anything about it, especially well, since Alan Moore I don't, left. I don't know if it's... Um, Cause remember, I Katie Arrington went over and she was going <laughs> to... Katie Arrington kind of stepped off of CMMC and she took over that for a little while. And then obviously she went and that was the last I heard of it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure it's still around in the National Security Innovation Capital, uh, to out of the uh, yeah you. Uh, well, yeah. Shop I mean that that's that. I know that's going. Like, yeah. So, but I'm just saying, you, there's other tools in the toolbox, yeah. you know. And if they are getting, you know, money, well, maybe you give them a, a bigger phase too, or maybe you, uh, you know, if they're if China is that interested, in them, maybe you know, maybe they should. Maybe it's actually something we should be putting more money into because it's it's promising tech or something. So. Yeah, anyway, I think his point is valid that you don't, you know, I don't, we don't want this on any of our companies that we're doing business in the defense sector is you don't want them having those, those ties to China. Uh, but at the same time, we do need to figure out what the problem is and help them, not just sort of cut them off from, from any government funding. Um, and for yeah, private the, funding either, right? Because a lot of, it's not going to well, be yeah. clear, right? Like who's behind certain types of companies and where like a limited partner might be from China or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. yeah it's you know, hard. It's like, really it's hard. It's really hard. It's very hard. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like, you can't do that for every phase one, you know, and stuff like that. So, yeah. So then on the other point, real quickly, is just, you know, I get I get this thing. And I think Ben's research was really compelling in terms of saying, like, clearly, there are some server mills out there. And these companies are just getting money, you know, year after year. And they're not really delivering anything. And it's, you know, some of them are big private companies. And Well, it's not even whether they're you know, delivering anything, right? Like, they are they just have, like, the processes. And they just look like a traditional kind of contractor going through the motions. Right? They might be delivering something fine um, or what's required of them in the contract. But that's not necessarily the point of the Cibber. I guess, what is the point of the Cibber program? I don't know. But it's not like finding new guys and, and bringing them through and kind of moving them on. Right. Well, I mean, I think the, I think the best way of, you know, labeling Sibber is it's a seed, it's seed fund, right. It's yeah, like right. somebody, somebody that, somebody that is inherently small. And I think you did a great, you know, great podcast with, um, you know, with the, um, the Bresslers. Uh, Bresslers. Yeah. man, I was going to say Amanda and I, and, 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 uh, and her brother, Alex. Alex. So, you know, that, that was fantastic because, They've really done some good, good digging on that to say, you know, some of these definitions and makes codes and what defines a small business. Is it how many employees they have? Is there revenue? And there's all these sort of gamemanship. So I think that should be more of the focus here is come up with some rules around Cibber. You know, no public companies. That's probably a decent rule. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then come up with some revenue caps. If you make more than you know, $50 million a year, you're not a small business or whatever. Well, you know, you know? it's actually interesting because Joby Aviation, they got AFWorks phase two, um, but they, they've spacked, right? They, they've got a yeah, yeah. special purpose acquisition corporation, whatever it is. They're, they're, they're IPO'd. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say Joby shouldn't have gotten a phase two, but they're not a sipper mill. They got a phase two and they're, they're doing some, Agility Prime, they have a ton of, of uh, yeah, a ton of VC, you know, right? VC yeah. capital, right? So that's what gives you the the warm and fuzzy there, at least. I mean, like those types of folks, you know, I'd like to give them real money and like take it out of the server, just like you know, yeah. Let's give you, let's give you a contract. Let's prototype. Let's start prototyping some stuff with you guys. Yeah. So yeah, no, you're right. I'm just saying there's options, right? Like, and I think you could do some sensible things for the server program that would make it. 
you know, make, make it uh, very worthwhile and do get back to the intent of it. Um, not everything is going to transition. Some of it might just go off commercial. Some of it might die. That's just the name of the game. But yeah, I don't think, uh, I, I do hope that it gets re initiated. That, that was the, the gist of this article was that Paul wasn't going to support that. And I hope that, uh, hope that doesn't happen. Well, I mean, it's, it's going to happen, right? It's just, well, he's, I don't he's know. raising his issues and he wants to, you, you think he's actually going to like stop well, the it, whole show? It That's needs to happen. Hard. It needs to happen by September. And we haven't been good at, uh, haven't been very good at getting bills through it by September. So, yeah, you know. but like the appropriations is always going to take forever. But, but I'm just saying, it's going to be hard to stop that train, a one man show, because there's a lot of interest um, to just get that money moving anyway. Yeah, he is, the, he is the ranking member on that really important committee, though. So. Yeah. But yeah, uh, but no, no, fair enough. He's ranking, ranking, <laughs> ranking. Yeah, I know. Fair enough. He, he, you're right. He's one guy. I, I don't think. I think you're right. I think it has support on the other thing. But I'm just saying that th- this program could get it, it could get disrupted if they don't pass something on it. Because yeah. By the way, on the uh, the Joby and the Agility Prime effort, one of the things that kind of someone connected the dots for me. He was like, you know, okay, there's agile combat employment where the Air Force wants to, though it doesn't seem to be very credible in its plans to be able to, you know, disperse their forces and have kind of rapid bases and and move pretty um, agilely through the Pacific. But if you do that and you have these exquisite systems, you're going to need to be able to get spares and repairs and all sorts of other types of logistical um, issues where today it's just done like in a massive, right, (laughs) Um, kind of, build out so i guess agility prime is actually could be thought of as part of that effort to like autonomously and quickly get those types of uh, logistical supplies where they need to be in the pacific so i don't know if those things have the range for that but someone told me that and i was like oh that kind of makes some sense yeah i don't know about that either i mean that it definitely has some lift capacity but I mean, it depends on what you're transporting. I mean, if you're transporting, you know, munitions or, you know, ammo or, you know, some, you know, there's, there's a lot of things like, you I mean, that's sort of why we have C-17s. It's like, you you can land well, on Guam, probably... but like, where else are you going to land that thing? Well, C-17s can land on a very short runway. I mean, that's the whole idea with them is that you can get them in really like weird places. But I mean, you're going to have to, you're not going to be able to like bring in ATACMs and, you know, PRSMs on a, you know, on a, in a quadcopter, you know, but anyway. Yeah. But those are, those are army systems. The <laughs> Air Force cares <laughs> about itself. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess you can bring in, I guess you can bring in screws and nuts, you know, for the airplanes or whatever. But, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you're going to bring in cockpits or, you know, the other things that you, yeah. Or the, um. The seaplane C one thirty that would be that that's a good I like that one. Oh man, I can't believe I know I'm so ready for that program to like program of record like it's crazy that DARPA has to be doing this right like I don't I don't understand it it doesn't feel like a DARPA program <laughs> like you know well I think DARPA just forever. does the stuff that the services aren't doing I think they just see like yeah this makes a ton of sense and so we're gonna get it going um, but yeah like seaplanes man like it just makes too much sense. Well, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks for joining, Matt, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, 
interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.